0: Alright, grab your Bibles. You're going to need them. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Two verses this morning. Remember, often shorter passage means longer sermon, so don't get your hopes up. Page 982 in the Pew Bible. We are now coming down the mountain, which is 2, 5 through 11. It is one of the high points. Of scripture as it lays out for us so clearly the glorious person and work of Christ. We've seen the movement from humiliation to exaltation. He laid himself low and God lifted him up high. Christ is exalted. He is given the name above all names. He is the Lord. As the king, he has all power and all authority. And he is even all the more glorious because he used all that power and all that authority to become a man and to die In our place. Verses 5 through 11 are the gospel. Christ is the gospel. 5 through 11 beautifully tell us who he is and what he has done to save us from our sins. The question is why does Paul tell us all these wonderful things about Christ now? Why is the central point of this letter to the Philippians the majesty and the person and the work of Christ? We leave for vacation next week. You can be praying for us on Thursday. We'll be making the long 10-hour drive down the coast to North Carolina all day. Uh, pray for us. Pray especially for me. A uh, great opportunity for sanctification awaits. Uh, we couldn't make it in an hour trip yesterday without having two vomiting episodes. So 10 hours extrapolating out. I think that's 20 if my math is right. So let's pray not for that. Um, but you know the feeling after Vacation, right? Or at least one of those vacations that, that didn't go terribly, right? There's, there's the letdown, and there's the coming down off the mountain, off the high. There's been traveling in new places, and beaches, and food, and family, and rest, and relaxation. And then all of a sudden, it's back to work. It's back to the grind. It's back to the same old, same old mundane day-to-day life. Let's be clear. That's not what is happening as we transition from 5 5 through 11 to 12 through 13. It could feel like that. It could feel like the mountaintop of the majestic glory of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, verse 12, obey. Verse 14, stop complaining. Verse 15, be holy. No, there's no letdown here. These verses are are gold. I told you that I preached Philippians just to preach Philippians chapter 2. And it's these three parts of Philippians chapter 2. I wanted to hit the unity through humility of verses 1 through 4. I wanted to hit the humiliation and exaltation of Christ in 5 through 11. And then I wanted to hit our role and God's role in our life in Christ in 12 through 13. Paul is now back to application. He's taking the wonderful truths of 5 through 11 and then now applying them to to the nitty gritty of the Christian life. And he's reaching all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27. This large section is technically started all the way back there. Remember, 127 let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we said from 27 through 30 that a manner of life worthy of the gospel is corporate steadfast struggle, it's standing together. As the church, for the faith of the gospel, in the midst of suffering and conflict. And then in 2, 1 through 4, Paul focused on the corporate nature of such a life. Be united, be of the same mind. Then in verse 5, he told them, how? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then 5 through 11, he moves and he motivates them with the gospel, with Christ. He never tells us first what to do. He first tells us what is true. He tells them what is true of them in light of the work of Christ. They have this mind. Now live it out. And then he points them to Christ, who is both pattern and power, who is model and means. And we're going to see that same idea today in one of the most important passages in the Bible on the Christian life, on growing in holiness and godliness, and Christian maturity. And man, again, maybe it's just me. Maybe you're a better person than me. I know most of you are better people than me. But how frequently do we find ourselves falling and failing? How difficult do we find it to change, to fight, and to kill sin, to live lives of contentment and gladness and joy? The Christian life is hard. And anyone who tells you otherwise... Is trying to sell you something change is hard but it's possible growth is possible obedience is possible holiness righteousness godliness it's possible in fact it's actually guaranteed in the gospel we're just not often sure exactly how it works what are we called to do if anything well what does God do if anything well this short in succinct passage answers those questions almost better than any other passage. I've got a lot of points that we need to run through because I want you to see the progression uh, of how growth and change in the Christian life works. I want you to see that you have great work to do, but that that is rooted in the great work that Christ has already done for you and is presently doing in you. So the clock is already feeling oppressive. Let's move. The Christian life, how do we grow? How do we change? Six points. Yeah, you heard that right. Six. Now the last two will be very, very brief. Follow the progression here. I need you to see first that your salvation includes your sanctification. Then I need you to see that your sanctification includes your work. And then I want you to see that that work is your obedience. And then, praise God, we're going to see that your obedience is also God's work. And then how that work is grace and love. And finally, then how that grace and love is God's good pleasure. So we're going to progress from our role and responsibility to God's role and responsibility and finish rooted in the grace and love and the pleasure of God. That's a lot. Let's see what we can do. Philippians chapter two, two verses, 12 through 13. I will read it for you. In God's perfect, meticulous sovereignty, this is his word for you today. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You would bow with me and let's, let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we believe that it is true and right and good in all that it affirms. Help us to understand it, help us to see it. Father, I pray this morning that we would be uh, doers of the word and not hearers only. I pray that you would speak and work. Uh, through uh, uh, through your word. I pray that you would do in this time what I cannot do uh, for us and what we cannot do for ourselves. Father, show us Christ. Change us uh, through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our first point is that your salvation includes your sanctification, and it's really important that we start here uh, and that we see how Paul starts. Don't miss who Paul is writing to. Skip the first word. We'll come back to it later. The second word is equally important. Beloved. And yes, technically I know that's the third word, but it's the second word in the Greek. Paul writes to my beloved, meaning he's writing to the church. He is writing to Christians. He's writing to believers, which means that this is important, that for those of you who are here today and are not believers, or for those of you who think you are, uh, but you aren't, and I hope maybe you'll realize that through the course of this sermon today, uh, but for those of you, right, this doesn't apply to you. Paul is not writing these words to you. And if you miss this point, you are going to be tempted to hear me telling you to work for your salvation. So we have to, again, be clear from the beginning on the divide between believer and non-believer. This is addressed to believers. This has nothing to do with how to become a believer. If you're not a believer, that's what you need to be concerned about. How to become a believer, you need to be concerned first about salvation. But hold on. You may be thinking, that's the word that Paul uses here. That's the command. Look at it. Work out your salvation. So first we need to unpack that word. We need to determine what, what two words mean workout and salvation. So let's start with this workout concept. Here here are alternate possible translations of this Greek word. It can mean to accomplish, to achieve, to effect, or to produce. And so that should send off little alarms in our good Protestant doctrines of grace Brains. Substitute some of those alternate translations, and you'll see the potential problem. Accomplish your salvation. Achieve your own salvation. Affect your own salvation. Produce your own salvation. What? This is the letter that starts in verse 2 of chapter 1 with the word grace. Right, that, that very heart of the gospel. We trumpet the words of Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Saved by grace, not works. Chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation. Accomplish your own salvation. But wait, Romans 4. Again, the explicit contrast. Between works and grace and faith. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul is so clear. In so many places, not works. It is only by grace Through faith that we are saved and we know that and we cling to that as our only hope. Because this is what separates the gospel from every other religion and every other philosophy. Everything else is telling you what you have to do for your salvation. Only the gospel tells you what God has done for you for your salvation. Not works, grace. So what then do we do with this verse? Well, let's turn to our second word, salvation. Words matter, and they should especially matter to us, people of the book. We used to be people of the book. Christians used to be called people of the book because we read it all the time, and we knew it, and it just kind of came out of us when we spoke. Are we still people of the book? Uh, People of the book are people of the word, and so we should be very careful to use our words wisely, and we often don't do that. And that can sometimes happen with the word salvation. It's simple enough. God saves us. But we often limit our understanding of what that means to to one thing, when God has done at least three things when he saves us. And this misunderstanding has been a big problem in the American church in the last hundred years. Where I come from in the South, this just plagues Uh, The Bible Belt. This is all over the place. This is what has led to the easy believism and the crazy idea of this kind of carnal Christianity idea. Pray this prayer. You get saved. Now go and do uh, what you want. Uh, Now we need to clarify what salvation is real quick. God does three things when he saves us. He justifies. He sanctifies. He glorifies. That's salvation. First, he justifies us. Justification. The Shorter Catechism says justification is a work of God's free grace whereby he pardons all our sins and he accepts us as righteous. Pardons our sin, accepts us as righteous. That's justification. Remember, God is perfectly righteous. He is right and he is good. And to be in relationship with him, we have to be righteous We have to be right and good and thus right with Him. But all have sinned. We have all fallen short of His glory. None is righteous. No, not one. So you must be righteous, but you're not righteous. That's where justification comes in. Justification is the act of God in which He counts us as righteous. He accepts us as righteous. Why? Not because we are righteous, in ourselves, but because Christ is righteous and because we are in Him. So in justification, God declares us righteous based on the righteousness of Christ that is counted as ours. And He does this by grace through faith because of Christ's work, because He died for us. We are pardoned of our sin. There is no longer any penalty for sin. Justification. We are declared right with God. With me? That's the first part. Now, when we hear the word salvation, we often think exclusively of justification. And we stop there. And many want to stop there. Because as we mentioned last week, nobody wants to go to hell. And nobody says, yes, you want to go to hell? Uh, no. I pray this prayer. You don't have to. All right. That sounds great. Um, nobody wants to go to hell. No one wants to suffer the penalty for their sins. So everyone loves the idea of there no longer being any penalty for sin. Many love the idea that we can be saved, in other words, go to heaven, but still get to do whatever we want down here. Here, Still get to have our, our fun. Still enjoy the, the, the pleasures, the so-called pleasures of sin. But salvation doesn't stop with Justification. Because salvation is not just justification. Your salvation, as our first point, includes your sanctification. What is sanctification? Shorter catechism. It, too, is an act of God's free grace whereby we are renewed after the image of God and enabled to, be more, to more and more die to sin and live to righteousness. In it, we are increasingly set free now from the power of, of sin. So in justification God counts us as righteous, in sanctification God makes us righteous. In justification God accepts us, in sanctification God changes us. And the point I want you to see is that those whom God justifies, he also always sanctifies. Now, there's a third part that we're not looking at today. Salvation culminates and concludes in glorification. When at the return of Christ, all things are made new, including us. When we are changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be like him. We will be right, and we will be righteous. No more sin. So in glorification, we are finally free then from the very presence of sin. So those are sometimes what have been referred to as the three tenses of salvation. We are saved from the past penalty of our sin. We are being saved from the present power of our sin. And one day we will be completely saved from the future presence of sin. That's justification, sanctification, glorification. And those three together, that's salvation. All of it. And sometimes in Scripture... refers to the whole process sometimes Paul uses it to refer to one specific aspect of that process and that's what's happening in our passage when Paul says work out your salvation he is not saying as we tend to think work out your justification Uh, you can't it's only by grace through faith he must then be talking specifically here about your sanctification Salvation here means sanctification, right? The process of Christian growth and maturity and change. He's saying work out your sanctification, or if you just can't get over that word, he's saying live out your sanctification. So salvation includes sanctification. And so if it doesn't for you, well, then you just don't have salvation. Because those whom God justifies, he also Sanctifies Those whom God redeems, he also changes. Salvation always includes sanctification. And this is the very purpose of salvation. This is what God is up to from the very beginning. He created what? A people to be with him and a people to be like him, to reflect him to his creation. He created us in his image and in his likeness. But we sinned. We rejected him. We ruined everything. That image, however, was not erased, but effaced. And ever since, God has been in the restoration business. He is restoring that image in his people. He is fixing us. He is making us new. He is making us like Christ. He saves us to change us. A couple of verses, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Stop there. God did it. It's his work. Salvation is according to his sovereign grace. It's according to his will, not ours. He chooses, not us. He's God, not us. Dead sinners don't do things. They cannot choose a living God. Thank God, then, for his initiating grace. Well, back to the verse. Why did he predestine us? Why did he choose to save us? It tells us, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. He predestined us to change us. He predestined us to make us like Jesus. We were created in the image of God. Our sin marred the image of God. Through Christ, God is restoring the image of God. That's sanctification. Listen to the next verse. Eight thirty. This is the golden chain. Notice how it all goes together. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All that together is salvation. And it includes sanctification. Believer, what does God want for you? Uh, What is his will for your life? I get that question a lot as a pastor. I just don't know what God's will is for me. It's not a secret. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's it, <laughs> right? Ed used the great Augustine coat Friday night. So that means love God and then do what you want. Right? God has given you his will. Obey him and then go and live your life to his glory. Right? Your, the will of God is your sanctification, your change, your holiness. Salvation includes sanctification. No sanctification, no salvation. Those whom God saves, he always sanctifies. So, that's established. We need to keep moving. We need to further explore both the how and the what of sanctification. How it happens and what it consists of. Well, those are our next two points. Number two, your sanctification includes your work. This one's sort of a controversial one these days surprisingly even in some reformed circles where the word work has almost become a, a four-letter word it is a four-letter word it's a joke literally uh, but you know what i mean uh, by that but listen there's no way around it here paul commands us to work he says work the word in greek means work you out your own salvation this is an imperative he's telling you to do something Work. And again, Paul's not contradicting himself. He's not saying your works can contribute in any way to your justification or to your standing with God, but he is telling you how you are to respond to that justification and standing with God. He is laying out for us now the natural consequence or result of that justification, which is sanctification. And then now our call and responsibility to work or live that. This is something that we are to do, and this is something that requires effort on our part. This is all over the New Testament, a couple verses. 2 Peter 1.5, couldn't be more clear. Make every effort. Romans 8.13 says, you put to death the deeds of the body. Ephesians 4.22 and 24 tells you to put off your old self and to put on your new self. Colossians 3.5 tells you to put to death what is earthly in you. And Paul practices what he preaches. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says that he worked harder than any of them. Colossians 1.29, Paul talks about all his toil and struggling work. That's what Christians do. They make every Effort. They fight the good fight of the faith. They resist the devil. They kill sin. And as Calvin says, this is a work arduous and of immense labor. Christians work hard to be holy. There's two seemingly contradictory, in our minds, metaphors in Scripture for the Christian life. We like the sound of one of them, so we focus on it, which we should. It's good. But then we often conveniently try and ignore the second one. Because in Scripture, Christians are called both to rest and to run. Rest and run. Matthew eleven twenty eight. We love it. We should. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Christian life is wonderfully, it is rest. But what about Hebrews 12, 1? Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set. Before us, the Christian life is run. And I don't know about you. And I don't know if any of you... I was going to say we have no real runners here, but Jonna runs marathons and she showed up, so she ruined that. Um, so none, most of us don't run. Uh, I love lifting. I despise running. It's so much work. I could lift for two hours. I run for five minutes and I'm miserable. Uh, I don't know about you, but I tried to get on the treadmill the other day and just stand there and see what would happen. And it just shot me off the back, right? Running requires effort. Oh, it's a joke. Come on, Susan. But running requires... I've not yet ever fallen off a treadmill. Um, but it obviously requires effort. The Christian life is both to run and to rest. But listen, it's not to run for the rest, but it's to run from the rest. Again, not in the sense of running away from it, but running out of it because of the rest. We run. We fight. We strive. We struggle. We work. Your sanctification includes your work. Holiness does not happen automatically. If you continue to do nothing, surprise, surprise. Nothing is going to happen. If you do not pursue holiness, you will not become holy. Yes, our enemies are great. Uh, Besetting indwelling sin is serious. It resists us. It wins sometimes. Yes, the world seems to be an increasingly... Difficult place to be a Christian. Yes, the devil is great, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us. Woe, his path, his craft and power are great. But maybe, just maybe, some of our holiness problems are the result of plain old laziness. Sometimes it is for lack of effort. Christian, the Apostle Paul here, and in the inspired word of God, is commanding you to to work, to put forth effort, to strive and to fight. Are you? Is your life marked by effort, struggle, and holy warfare? Well, maybe you're not sure yet. Maybe you don't know how to tell. So let's keep going. Because again, what is this work? What really is sanctification? What is our role in it? What does this look like? Oh, he tells us, thankfully. Look again, number three. Your work is your obedience. Verse 12, we've been looking at the second part, but the first part helps us understand what the second part means. Paul says at the end, so now work out your own salvation. First part, as you have always obeyed. He directly links together. Work out salvation and obedience. Christian, obey. That's your responsibility. That's your work. But man, talk about another uh, two four-letter words that aren't four-letter words, but really are. We treat them like four-letter words. Work and obey. To work is to obey. Our tendency, our thinking, tends to be, since I'm saved, without any regard to my work, my work doesn't matter. Paul is saying, no. Since you are saved without any regard to your work, your work matters all the more our thinking tends to be since i'm saved without any regard to my obedience my obedience doesn't matter paul is saying no no no. since you are saved without any regard to your obedience your obedience matters all the more christians obey and we could spend week after week and sermon after sermon going through all the texts in scripture about the importance of obedience we love the love of God we love singing about and affirming the love of God and we love saying oh you know I just I just love God positive encouraging love. I tried to listen to a little bit on the car on the way over to driving yesterday and I had to turn it off because uh, one of the songs made no sense so we proclaim the love of God what do we mean by that what, what does that actually mean because as I said before, we're in, we live in a very loved, confused culture, and even a very loved, confused Christian culture. But Jesus isn't confused. He tells us what it means to love God. This is why we read John 14 earlier. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. That's twice. 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's three. 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. That's four. Jesus directly connects the words love and obey. Directly connects them together. To love God is to obey God. We talked a few weeks ago about the great commandment in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Again, you know, we love it. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And we think it means have some sort of, I don't know, sentimental, kind of nice, positive, warm, fuzzy feeling about God. Uh, We explained how that means that those three terms mean simply we're to love him with our whole being. I'm supposed to love God with everything that I have and everything I am. And if, as Jesus makes clear in John 14... To love God is to obey God. That means that the great commandment calls me to love God with everything I have and everything I am in large part by obeying God with everything I have and everything I am. To love is to obey. That doesn't really make any sense to us because we've separated the words. We've separated law and grace. But we've separated all of these things. Why is to love To obey. Because obedience is a form of trust. Obedience is a form of faith. And trust makes much of God. Trust honors God. Trust is the recognition that He is trustworthy and then acting like it. Obedience and trust say to God, I believe you, and I believe that you're good, and I believe that what you say about the world is right. And I believe that what you command me is, is for my good. And that brings God great glory. As the great Puritan John Owen put it, the greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him, we go we're like murder, uh, adultery, and we go to all these things. What's the worst thing? You know what John Owen says it is? The greatest dishonor you can do is to not believe that He loves you. is to not believe that God loves you. Listen, that's what you're saying every time you disobey. Every time we choose sin, we are saying, listen, you, I think you're wrong here. Uh, you must not be good. I don't trust you to speak and to work uh, for my good. There are a few things more dishonoring or offensive than to say to someone, I do not trust you. If you came to me, hey, I want to do this thing, and I'm like, I'm sorry, man. I, just, I just don't trust you. Ah, um, oh, that's terribly offensive. That's especially true of God, the perfectly trustworthy one. And that's what our disobedience says to him, and that is not love. Love is obedience. We love God by obeying God. It's a form of our trust and an acknowledgment of his goodness. So uh, let me get a shameless plug in here uh, real quick. We have Sunday school every Sunday at 10 o'clock before the service. Guys, you're not getting enough word. You need more than just the 45 minutes you get from me here. Sunday school is a great supplement to that. Next week, we're starting a new series downstairs through the Sermon on the Mount. Henry's going to be leading us for a couple of weeks on what is probably the most praised yet least practiced sermon in the whole of history. The sermon teaches us about the lifestyle of the kingdom of God. It's a sort of manifesto of the kingdom, of the Christian life. And you know what the whole thing ends with? It ends with a call to obedience. Again, the Sermon on the Mount is not about how to get into the kingdom. It's about the life that characterizes those who have already been brought into the kingdom by the grace of God. And Matthew 7 closes with a wonderful illustration. The wise man who builds his house... On the rock and the fool who builds his house on the sand. What does it mean? What is it that distinguishes the wise from the fool? It's obedience. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man. The fool is the one who hears the word and does not do the word. Jesus ends the whole wonderful Sermon on the Mount with a call to obey. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. And some of you are going to leave this room today having deceived yourself because you heard it, but now you refuse to do it. Christians obey. Hearing is obeying. Loving is obeying. So you must obey. It's not an optional part of the Christian life. It's not like the part that the carnal Christians don't have to do but the real Christians have to. It's not the part that those who have been saved have to do but the disciples or they don't have to do but the disciples do. No, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple and the command is to obey, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. Discipleship includes obedience. It's just a core part of the Christian life. No obedience, no Christian life. No Christian life No life. But man, this can just be so potentially discouraging for so many of us, right? We know what the word says, but we also know our lives. We know our history. We know how much of a struggle this is. We know how hard obedience is. So I don't want to pull back from anything I've said, because I think Paul is being very clear, but uh, let me be clear that we are not here talking about perfection. The presence of sin Remains. Remember, it's not until glorification that it's completely gone. But in the sanctification, we are increasingly freed from the power of sin. So we need to work to distinguish between the activity of sin, which is true for all believers, and the dominion of sin, which is true for all unbelievers. There's a difference between the presence of sin, which we will never be completely free of in this life, and the dominion of sin which all Christians are free of now in this life. A Christian cannot continue in and under the dominion of sin. Our attitude towards sin and our relationship toward it are fundamentally changed by the gospel. Yes, the sin is still there. But in the words of Owen again, it is now a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. The sin's there, now a burden that afflicts, and not a pleasure that delights. Listen, guys, if you have a cavalier attitude towards sin, that's, man, that, that's very concerning. If you're thinking, is that since you're saved, you can go on sinning? And Paul has some things to write to you in the book of Romans. I'm speaking from experience here. This was my life for a long time. I loved my sin, again, pastor's kid, raised in the church, entire life, youth group, all-star. Uh, I loved my sin. Uh, the idea of having to give it up sounded horrible to me. How, how would I have fun? I mean, how would there be pleasure? I could not imagine turning away from all that. Uh, so I continued to do what everyone down there does. I prayed the sinner's prayer every week when I felt guilty and concerned uh, just to make sure I was covered. Okay, the last one didn't count, I'll do this one and be a little more sincere Um, And I continued to try and deceive myself that it didn't matter what I did because I'd prayed that magic prayer. And so I was going to heaven. I wanted the justification without the sanctification because it seemed to me like such a sweet deal. No penalty for sin. No hell. But hey, I can continue to enjoy the pleasures and presence of my sin now under its domineering power. I treated salvation like a get-out-of-jail-free card that allowed me to live however I wanted with no fear of the penalty of eternal consequences. Is that you? Do you love and long for your sin? Do you delight and pleasure in it? And man, thank God, again, for his sovereign pursuing, initiating, choosing grace Thank God that he ran after me while I was doing everything that I could uh, to run after him. Thank God that I met my wife four years later uh, than uh, the first time I saw her, because that's why I was still running. Uh, God had work to do first. Uh, Thank God that he changed my heart and my mind. Again, I'm still a sinner, but I can honestly say, by the grace of God, uh, my attitude and relationship toward that sin has changed. Whereas previously, I loved it, and I mourned ever having to give it up. Now, by the grace of God, I increasingly hate it, and I mourn when I still live it up. I'm disgusted by the sin that remains. Its presence now, it saddens me, and it burdens me, and it's there. And I can't, I I share with you how, how quickly, how impatient and angry I am sometimes, and I know that. And I can be impatient with my kids. And then I know that I'm doing it when I'm doing it. And then you're hearing yourself saying, hey, remember that thing you're working on that you're doing right now? Stop doing that thing. And, it just, and I hate it. I hate it. And I want it gone. I want to kill it. I long for the day when I will be free from the very presence of sin. Right? So I'm still a sinner. But thank God that he's now giving me just a disgust and a distaste, distaste for all that sin that remains in me. So what is your attitude and your relationship to your most precious and secret sins? Is your life marked by a loving of sin or a loathing of sin? Is your life characterized by a growing sanctification that you are working out by obeying the Lord? Your work is obedience. So the pressing question then, now that we have to answer is, is is how? You know, okay, I see it. I know I must obey, but, but how can I obey? How is this possible when I am so weak and I so struggle with my sin? Point number four. Verse 13 is how. This is basically our last point. Five and six will just be brief expansions of this point. And look, a wonderful verse 13. Uh, verse 12, ripped out of context, And divorced from 13. I wanted to make those two sermons, but I couldn't couldn't wait two weeks. Uh, I couldn't just leave you with 12 and not get uh, to 13. Because verse 12 without verse 13, it would be terrifying and crippling and defeating. But verse 12 coupled together with verse 13 is encouraging and empowering and life-giving. Your work is your obedience, but good news. Your obedience is also God's work. Listen to verse 13 again. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Verse 13. This takes our passage from exhortation to encouragement. Paul is not just saying, hey, try harder. He's not saying, you're not doing something. Start doing this thing. Look at verse 12. As you have always obeyed, They're already doing it. He's encouraging them to continue to press on. And he's encouraging them to do so by pointing them to the power at work in them. Remember last week that we started with the therefore of verse 9. Two parts of the Christ hymn. 6 through 8, the humiliation of Christ. 9 through 11, the exaltation of Christ. And it's the therefore that connects the two directly together. Christ humbled himself. Therefore, God exalted him. Which means that when we again start our passage here in verse 12 with a therefore, Paul's doing the same thing. He's directly connecting what comes after to what has come before. He's directly connecting this command to Christ, to what Christ has already done. Now this is what you are to do. And just to be safe, he can't go like a verse without circling back around to the indicative. And he starts again with a therefore. Or 13 starts with four. So the movement is substitutionary, sacrificial work of Christ in your place to save you and make you new. Therefore, work out your salvation. Continue to live a life manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. For it is God who works in you. Christ, you, God. What a wonderfully safe and secure place to be. What an encouragement. Yes, work. You have to work. Yes, obey. You have to obey. Christians work and obey, but not in their own power, in God's. Notice that there are three uses of the word work in our two short verses. Once you work, verse 12, twice, for it is God who works in you to work, verse 13. So the good news is that your obedience is your work, but yes, listen, it is also very much God's work. That's why, right, that the catechisms uh, accurately, when I defined sanctification earlier, started off by saying sanctification is a work of God's free grace. So our tendency often is to think justification, God's work, sanctification, our work. It's not justification, grace, sanctification, works. It's justification, God working for us, sanctification, God working for us in us and through us thus the title of the sermon it's working out that which god has been working in we work out with that which god works in so earlier i hope you were like thinking and looking at these verses i read a couple of verses that call us to great effort but i left out a part of each one of those verses okay. pretty key important parts second peter 1 5 does tell us to make every effort after it says that God's divine power has granted us, has graced us uh, with all things that pertain to life and godliness. Colossians 3.5 does tell you to put to death that which is earth- earthly in you. After it says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans 8.13 does tell you to put to death the deeds of the body, but it says to do so by the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul does say that he worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And in Colossians 1.29, Paul does talk about his toil and struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's how we work. We work out that which God works in. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So ultimately, it is God who works in us and through us as we work and obey, which makes it all grace, all to his glory, all to his credit and honor. That's how sanctification works. It's not let go and let God. It's not a little bit of God, a little bit of us. It's not he justifies, we sanctify. It's we work out what he works in. There are a, couple of, a couple of quotes. Uh, John Murray, the great Princeton, uh, Westminster theologian, says, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, so that the coordination of both produced the required result. God works and we also work, but the relation is that because God works, we Work All working out of our salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. John Owen again, three times today, I didn't realize that. The Holy Spirit so works in us that he works by us, and what he does in us is done by us. Our duty is to apply ourselves to his commands, according to the conviction of our minds, and his work is to enable us to perform them. John Edwards, like that three Johns. Jonathan Edwards. He says, We are not merely passive, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest, but God does all and we do all. God produces all and we act all, for that is what He produces our own acts. God is the proper author and fountain, we are the proper actors. We are in different respects wholly passive and wholly active. I love that. Wholly passive, rest, and wholly active, run. He is the author of, and we are the actor in our sanctification. Work out as God works in, or even better, live out as God lives in. That's Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's your motivation. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and he has granted you all things. His energy powerfully works within you. It is the grace of God in you. Don't sit idly by waiting for some mystical jolt of power. Don't use the sinfully lazy excuse that if God wanted you to change, he'd do something. He is. He's doing it right now. He's doing it through the preaching of his word. He does it in it, in you, and through you. So Christian, here's the good news. You can change. You can fight and kill sin because God is at work in you. This is why God saved you. Yes, he accepts you and forgives you, but he accepts you to change you. He forgives you to make you new. Your salvation includes your sanctification. You are called to work and obey, resting in the fact that God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, which was supposed to get us to our final two points. We'll have to mostly skip them, but I want you to at least hear me say that God's work in you is nothing but grace and love. Again, remember, he starts off, my beloved. Yes, loved by Paul, that's wonderful, but so much more importantly, loved by God. We love because he first loved us. We obey because he first loved us. Everything we do is a response to his gracious and sovereign initiative. And that sovereignty is never permission to be passive, but aid to be active. The love of God motivates love for God. The grace of God motivates obedience to God. That's why five through 11 is so important. That's why you don't start by committing yourself to just try harder. You start by looking to Jesus. That's how Hebrews 12 tells us to run the race, with our eyes fixed on him. As you see and love his grace, obedience becomes drudgery, not drudgery, but delight. And last heading there, notice that's exactly how Paul characterizes this whole process. God is doing this loving and gracious work in you for his good pleasure. God delights in his beloved. Brothers and sisters, you need to know and remind yourself and live in light of the fact that the creator God of the universe, the King and Lord of all reality, delights in you, takes pleasure in you, and in doing you good. That's motivation. Seeing that spurs us on. Seeing his infinite goodness makes us want to know and follow him. And seeing that goodness makes us more like him. We love that which is loved by our beloved. We take pleasure in what pleases the one we are most pleased in. And so we delight to work and to obey because we know that God is good and that he is working for our good. And his work for us is always grace and love. This is why, in closing back again to the end of verse 12, we are called to do all of this with fear and trembling. Because we're frightened and terrified of God? No. But because he is so great and glorious that we respect and revere and stand in awe of this amazing God that stoops to save us. I heard one old Scottish preacher this week, you know I love my my Scotsman, I heard him put it like this, Fear of man is fear of what man might do to me. Fear of God is fear of what I might do to God. I love that. I see his glory. I see his goodness. I see the sin that remains in me. And I know how prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And because he's so good, because he's been so good to me, I now tremble at the prospect of dishonoring and displeasing my Lord. I'm eternally thankful for my justification. I'm pursuing my sanctification with all his energy and longing for my glorification when that sin will be utterly wiped out. I'm not afraid of him. I'm afraid of dishonoring him. He's so good. I'm so not, and so I work all of this out before His face, wanting to live for Him, knowing how short I fall, and desperate for Him to protect and preserve me, clinging to the promise that He who began a good work in me will bring it to completion, and that's why I work. Now, we got to stop. Christians, brothers and sisters, get to work in light of the perfect finished work that Christ has already done for you. In light of the powerful ongoing work that God is currently doing in you, love him, obey him, delight in him, and resting in him. Run the race that is set before you. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Work out that which he has worked. you would bow with me and let's end with a word of prayer father we thank you for your grace we thank you that you do not leave us to ourselves we thank you that our sanctification is not dependent upon us but you and you work graciously and powerfully in us we thank you that you are more committed to our sanctification than we are and that your will will be done and that your work will be completed and that you are making us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, give us a great desire for holiness. Give us a great passion and zeal to follow you and to pursue you um, with all that we have and with all that we are. We love you. Help us, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen.